The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. ...things, doesn't he? He has a way of capturing compelling in compelling images important central thoughts to the Christian faith take for example his portrayal of Jesus as the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia series he's ferocious he's big majestic and at the same time he's capable of being warm and cuddly and even showing love to his friends by licking them as cats are known to do it's the perfect combination another insightful expression occurs in his book Prince Caspian which is the fourth book in the Chronicles of Narnia Lucy the little girl who's one of the main characters Lucy and her siblings are now back in the land of Narnia after being away for some time and when Lucy first meets Aslan again after some time of not seeing him she says to him Aslan you're bigger to which he replies, that is because you are older, little one. But not you, she asks. No, not me. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Did you catch that? The first time I read that, I thought I'd gotten something mixed up. But that is what he wrote. He said, I'm not actually, says Oslin, any older or any larger than I've ever been. You're just older. You see, to, to the young and immature, Oslin is a great, big lion. And as they mature, they find that he is still greater and still bigger than they'd ever previously thought. The prophet Habakkuk needed just that sort of mature vision of God. He needed to see the Lord as magnificent and as glorious and as awe-inspiring, especially given the reality of all the circumstances going on around him. That's what he needed. And in this morning's text, he gets it. We've been following Habakkuk's back-and-forth interaction with God now for five weeks. We've seen Habakkuk Habakkuk questioned the Lord about his lack of response in the face of rampant evil in Judah. And then we've seen Habakkuk question the Lord about his response to the rampant evil in Judah, namely the calling up of Babylon he was going to use as a tool of judgment against them. We've seen all that, and through the difficult questioning, we've seen Habakkuk display consistent faith in God. He keeps bringing these things to the Lord and asking Him, What's the deal? I can't put this together. Help me. We've seen that kind of faith, and that's exactly what God is after. Faith amidst hardship. Genuine, steadfast, persistent faith. Come what may in life. That's the kind of faith that God aims to produce in His people. It's the kind of faith that, in, that for us finds heart-sustaining help, aid amidst hardship. It's the kind of faith that honors God as it shows Him to be the supreme love in our hearts. It's the only kind of faith that matters. 
genuine saving faith is this kind of persistent faith that clings to Christ in all circumstances in life and to help generate and reinforce such persistent faith in Habakkuk and in his community and in us God gave the prophet a vision saw that back in chapter 2 we saw it remember the little thumbnail the brief expression of it in verses 4 and 5 then we saw the message of that expanded last couple weeks in chapter 2 and now this morning it comes in its fullest expression this is Habakkuk's description of the vision that he saw in form chapter 3 is really a psalm just like in the in the book of Psalms it's a poetic prayer song and it has several distinct parts we're gonna cover verses 1 to 16 this morning and we'll see that all together these parts come and they have one goal in addressing us the reader this psalm presents God to us in arresting imagery and it seeks to have an effect on us we find ourselves amidst hardship in life it seeks to present to us a bigger God to mature us in our view of him to summarize it behold he comes awesome to save trust him and live it's the message behold he comes I love that word behold I use it a lot I know but it's an excellent word because it calls us to lift up our eyes and look at something to see it and this passage presents to your mind's eyes such vivid imagery that you just must behold it you must look at him he comes and he comes awesome to save that's his purpose in coming that we'll see so what should you do well what chapter 2 verse 4 said to do trust him and live trust him and life behold he comes awesome to save trust him and live and read the passage and then we'll address four distinct stages of this psalm and the stages are not all equal the first and the fourth are, are the intro and the brief response so we're gonna deal with those relatively quickly and the meat of it is in stages two and three so those will be longer but before we get to those four stages let me read Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 1 to 16 I'm gonna read from the English Standard Version the first verse is just a an introduction a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth O Lord I have heard the report of you and your work O Lord do I fear in the midst of the years revive it in the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels he stood and measured the earth he looked and shook the nations then the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low his 
for the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers and your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The word of the Lord. The first stage in this psalm is just one verse, verse 2, so we'll be brief here. It's a request made of the Lord. God, in the midst of hardship, help. God, in the midst of hardship, help. Habakkuk and his faithful companions are living in hard times and they've just heard that things are going to get harder still. What do they need from God? They need help. That's what they ask of him. But it's a particular kind of help. You need to note this. This is important. He isn't purely calling out to God to come and fix the hardship. So often that's what we pray. God, make it go away. That's in our prayers very often. But Habakkuk knows that God has in fact caused this particular calamity. God told him as much back in chapter 1. So he realizes that God is not going to stop it, at least not yet. He knows that, so that's not what he's praying about. He's not simply praying for an immediate end to the trouble. There will be a period during which God will not take away the pain. He's not going to. And during that period, what kind of help is it that they want? What do they need? They need help that will be of aid to them in persevering in faith amidst the hardship. They want heart help, faith-strengthening help. Now, as they look forward to the eventual time of the ending of this trouble, now here at this time, they need help in sustaining their faith, giving them help to hold on to Him. That's their request. Let's take a look at that. Verse 2. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. 
In your work, O Lord, do I fear. Amidst the reported looming disaster, Habakkuk recalls that he has also previously heard other reports about the workings of God. Yes, God is working something hard right now, but God has consistently throughout time also worked to preserve His people, sometime in astounding, stunning ways. He knows all these things. He reveres this God in His ways, this full-orbed picture of God, and so He makes a request of Him. Three statements. It's the second half of verse 2. There are three parallel statements here. You can see it best in how the English Standard Version translates in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, in wrath, really a better word there than wrath would be in the trembling, or in the tumult. It's not the same word for wrath that occurs later in the passage. So those three statements, in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, in the tumult, or trembling, wrath. Lord, I have a request. I know that there are years of pain ahead. Years of subjugation to wicked foreigners. I know those years are coming right up and they're going to be hard years. So I have requests, Lord, in the midst of those years, right there in the middle of them, work for us, please. Do your work of sustaining your people. Have mercy on us. He knows it's coming. And he also knows that he has been told that the righteous ones by faith will find life in him. And so he claims that promise. Give life, Lord. Help us. Sustain us now. Sustain your people during this trial. And one day remove the trial. Oh Lord, during this coming time of tumult, when the country is invaded, when the temple is torn down, when the throne of David sits empty, when the wicked Babylonians triumph. Oh Lord, during this time of tumult, when the cancer ravages my body, when my spouse gets in a car accident, when my children want nothing to do with you or with me, when I cannot get a job, or when I cannot get rid of the feelings of loneliness and sorrow that haunt me all day long, when nothing makes sense, and the proud and puffed up in the world prosper while the righteous suffer and die. Lord, in those years, help, give life, have mercy. When we are hard-pressed on every side, let us not be crushed. When we are persecuted, do not abandon us. When we are struck down, do not destroy. There is certainly physical safety type pleading included in this. God, help us save our lives, save ourselves, our skin. But much more than that. He knows people are going to die. They're being invaded by an army. Much more than that, there is spiritual pleading here. Help save our souls. Physical hardship is coming. Give us life amidst it, O oh Lord. Just like you promised you would. And sustain our faith so that we can continue to trust you so that we can find life in you. That's our greatest need from you, Lord, in the midst of these years. So give it. We need you and life from you. Help. 
That's his request. That should be our request. We live in the midst of the years. That's what life is like for us now. There's a time coming when that won't be anymore. There won't be any more suffering or strife or trial or pain. That's not now. We live now right smack in the middle of these years. And too often we pray, God, change the circumstances. That's our primary concern. It's okay to pray that. No problem with that. We should pray that. We should pray, come, Lord Jesus. End all of this. That's the last words of the Bible. Come. We should pray that. But God's primary agenda here, what He's after is the strengthening and maturing of our faith right now. We saw that several weeks ago when we looked at all those New Testament passages. The faith that is of greater worth than gold, says Peter. We are to count it all joy when he brings things to our life that strengthen our faith, says James. Remember all that? That's God's primary agenda right now in our lives. That should be our primary request. God, build my faith so that I can cling to you and find life in you. God wants to answer that kind of request. He is about that. We saw those many verses about that. That's Habakkuk's request. God answers it. That moves us into the second stage. Let's turn to that and see how God responds. God's response follows right on the heels of that kind of request and he means it as a help to us. Faith-sustaining, heart help amidst the years of hardship. And throughout this psalm, in the second stage and in the third stage, which we'll see in a few minutes, all throughout, the Lord's response to this request is centered on one vast, captivating, awesome reality. God Himself. We cry out in prayer, Help! Help! And God says, Look at me. See me with the eyes of your mind and heart. Here's the second stage of the psalm. Behold, he comes, and he is awesome. He is awesome. That is a word that we desperately need to recover these days. Awesome. Sadly, in our modern vocabularies, too often that word is followed by the word dude. As in awesome dude. And it is attached to things, it refers to things that are not in fact remotely awesome. That was an awesome hamburger, dude. That song, movie, home run, ski run was awesome, dude. That's how we use that word today. Myself, unfortunately, included sometimes. Now, while I appreciate the desire to praise and celebrate the happenings of life, we have lost something important by downgrading that word awesome for use in this sort of way. We have lost a way of describing 
and even an ability to differentiate between the interesting or maybe the slightly impressive and the truly awesome. There are very, very, very few things in this world that are awesome. In fact, ultimately, there is only one. Verses 3 to 7 paint us a picture of him, a picture that is strong help amidst hardship. The Lord in his very nature is awesome. He is full of awe-inspiring splendor and magnificence. Do you know what awe is? It is that marvelous mixture of fear, veneration, and wonder. Those things mixed together. It is the thought, but also very much the intangible feeling of fear, of dread. Because what you are looking at and contemplating at the moment is far beyond you. It is out of your control. It towers over you and it will overwhelm you if it so chooses. And that always terrifies us. But mixed with this fear is veneration, reverent worship, a profound respect, and a wonder. It goes beyond dread and includes this admiration. We fear many things that we never revere, like a disease, for instance. We fear cancer, but we don't revere it or worship it. We do the best we can to avoid it, keep it in its place. But there's no mixing of reverence. There's no veneration there. Awe is fear mixed with veneration and also wonder. We are struck by the amazement of it all. This object of awe is marvelously puzzling and attractive to our minds. It's hard to understand, but it is wonderful. Perhaps part of the reason we wonder at it is that as we look at this, we notice going on inside of us this curious mixture of dread and admiration. Those things don't usually mix, but here in this instance they are, and we wonder at why that is. There's something incredibly attractive and curious going on here. We're slightly afraid of something, but we simultaneously find it deeply admirable and praiseworthy and deserving of our reverence. All of that mixed together is awe. And the Lord himself supremely. In fact, the Lord himself alone fully inspires this within our hearts. There are some things in the creation, several things mentioned in the next several verses that are awesome to an extent. Mountains, and seas, great storms. But the Lord towers over them all. He is truly awesome. And he is pictured here not as hiding off in heaven somewhere, distant and aloof, but as coming and coming right at us. Verse 3, God came, or better, it's present tense. He comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now why he comes is not yet clear. It's been alluded to before. There'll be more on that in the third stage. 
But for the moment, right now, these verses paint for us a picture of the coming Lord's awesome majesty. It's an abstract painting. The details aren't all there precise and complete, but it's clear. He's awesome. He comes from the south of Israel, from the region of the desert near Sinai, and then passes north through Kushan and Midian, headed towards Jerusalem. This march recalls the events of the Exodus, when God brought his people out of captivity in Egypt, in that deliverance, and then especially in the giving of the law to them at Mount Sinai. There, Israel was first introduced to her God. The Lord had gathered the people at that mountain. Picture, if you will, the Wasatch Front here. Try to think of it as Sinai, but not covered in clouds, covered in smoke and trembling. The whole earth is shaking and there are sounds coming from there. Lightning flashes here and there, you can see it in the smoke. It was awesome. The people were terrified. They wanted Moses to go up there, but not them. It was stunning. The whole place was shaking under the presence of the Lord. And from that region there, from that point, from that ominous holy mountain, from the south desert, God now again marches forth. But now he's left behind the clouds. And he's flipped it and he's introduced the imagery of light. Approaching, withering light. Like the sun when it rises in the desert and just finally gets over the horizon and everything goes blind because it's so stunning and there's nothing to stop it. And it's right shining in your eyes. And it's getting closer and closer and closer. Blinding rays of brightness. The Lord is approaching as a warrior riding in a chariot. Shining like the sun. Bright as midday. Lightning comes from Him. Dazzling bolts of rays. Radiating out and filling the whole of the creation. He is beautiful. His splendor. The sum total of all that is good and wonderful about him fills all of the creation, fills all of the heavens, and from everywhere, thundering out from all the voices on the earth, comes praise. The whole of the creation reveres him. He comes marvelous and dreadful. Because at his approaching, the earth itself can barely stand in front of him. He's the clear master of all the created order. He stands astride the mountains. He straddles over vast oceans as if mere puddles. Imagine, see him there. A figure so immense that he straddles over the Wasatch Mountains. No, over the whole of the Rockies. And he measures just Orem to Ogden. Just like that. Salt Lake to Denver. Way north in Canada, all the way down into Mexico. And then he counts all the sand in the Sahara. And he knows exactly how much water is in all of the oceans of his earth. He is clearly dwarfing everything here, just like we do when we measure a quarter of a teaspoon into a recipe. He is master of it all. He dominates it. And he's coming over it, striding forth. And each step shakes this earth to its foundations We use the expression as old as the hills because from our perspective, the mountains have been here just forever. They're going to be here long after we're gone. They're eternal, it seems. 
until he steps on them. He strides on them and they shake and they shatter and they collapse. Imagery of earthquake here. The eternal mountains, solid rock, permanent, are scattered and sunk low. They saw him and they writhed, contorted in shock waves and tremors. And this shocking, shaking affects all the nations. He comes with plague and pestilence. It's in verse 6, verse 5. He shakes the nations. The feeble tent structures of those enemies of God, they tremble in fear at his approaching. This isn't a detailed prediction. It's not going to happen exactly like this. We shouldn't go put a television camera with a video recorder or something on Mount Parn and wait for God to show up. Not going to happen. And nothing like this ever has happened. It's not recounting history either. All these images, all these illusions are, are borrowed from somewhere else. God showed Habakkuk something and he's trying to write it down in a way that will connect with his people. And so he references things from Israel's history like Sinai and, and the march north. He pulls things out of mythology that the people would have known and he marshals all of this together. He uses it to give us a little image of what it would be like to touch on the fringes of the veiled power of God. Awesome, isn't he? And coming. What do you see here? What do you see with your mind's eyes? A mighty, majestic, giant of a creature. Of a being. It's portrayed like that here. Who shines so bright that you can't look at him who stands so tall that he straddles all the earth, who is so massive that his footsteps cause earthquakes that nearly break the globe apart. And this is but the tip of his might, voluntarily restrained so as not to destroy us. That's what you're meant to see. Awesome. And surely in seeing this, you are meant to see the Lord as mighty and sovereign and powerful and splendid and to join in with verse 3 and to join in with chapter 2 verse 14 in spreading the knowledge of this glory everywhere across all of the creation. Surely we're meant to do that. Be awestruck before Him. Is there anything that this God cannot do? He can do all His holy will. Whatever He wants. Surely in seeing, like, seeing Him like this, there is help for us amidst the years of hardship. There's help for us amidst our comparatively light and momentary troubles. He can handle it. This is my God? Yes. This is your God. Bigger. Larger than you'd thought. Larger than you'll ever think. Praise Him. That He has made His nature known to us and an inkling of what His future work will be like. Praise Him. Believe in Him. Behold Him. Trust Him. Entrust yourself to Him. Come to Him in persistent faith for life. 
He is sovereign and wise and good. And if you are His child, He holds you in the palm of His hand to protect you and do good to you. See Him come to save. That's the third stage. Move on to that now. He comes, but the reason for His coming was not yet made clear. Figuratively, we look at Him and our mouths are there agape as He's coming at us, but we're not quite sure what to expect. What should we hope for when He finally arrives here? So the third stage of the psalm begins, and it tells us, as we had hoped, that He comes and He is awesome to save. He's awesome to save, finally. He's going to bend all of this awesome nature towards an objective to do good to His people, to deliver them. Pick it up in verse 8, where the observer's language switches. He's no longer describing what he sees the Lord to be. Now he asks him about his purpose. Starting in verse 8, down on through verse 11. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was it against the sea? When he came forth in all that splendor like the warrior, wielding your arrows and your spear for battle, when you shook the mountains and the sea, and subjugated the depths of the ocean and the heights of the heavens, you triumphed over or terrified all that we humans regard as mighty and some of us even foolishly worship? Did you come to destroy that creation, Lord? Is that what you were about? Habakkuk knows the answer. And we know the answer. But asking the question helps to focus us. No, in fact, his fury is not centered on the creation. It has another focus, another target. Picture a vast human army, maybe like verse 8, one with cavalry and chariots in it, lots of horse soldiers. As they thunder across a battlefield, they tear up the ground, they trample crops and bushes and flowers, they break down fences, the earth shakes if there are enough of them, they make a tremendous clatter on any wood or stone that they charge across, animals flee in front of them, but all that effect on nature is merely incidental a byproduct of them charging into battle. They're not angry with the ground. They're focusing their energy on another target. Same thing with our God. Verse 12, the rhetorical question is answered. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. He indeed is marching in fury, in rage, in wrath, but not against the earth against the nations. He's come to thresh them. Threshing is the process by which harvested grain was separated. The kernel, the valuable part, being separated out from the husk and from the stalk. The husk around it would be called the chaff. And what would happen is they would put the grain on a threshing floor and then they would beat it, beat it repeatedly, breaking it down, crushing it, so that it all separated out and then they'd throw it up in the air and the kernel that was heavier would fall and the wind would blow the chaff away. All the waste. Threshing. Like stalks of wheat, he comes to thresh the nations. To crush the head of the house of the wicked. 
leaving his naked body on the battlefield, cut open from thigh to neck. Pretty graphic picture of a battlefield threshing. And those enemy warriors who followed this head of the house of the wicked, with their own weapons, he's killed them. That which they trusted in, that which they found their power in as they tried to subjugate the poor people of God, that very thing they relied on has come back to judge them and destroy them. God has done this. It has come at his hand. The long-awaited deliverance has arrived. At the beginning of verse 13, why is he pouring out his rage on the nations and this wicked one and his warriors? A sweet statement. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He comes, awesome to save, glory. He comes finally. The midst of the years ends. It may have seemed slow in coming, but it surely did come. He may have seemed slow in coming, but he finally surely has come, just like he said he would in chapter 2, verse 3. The appointed time has arrived. God has come to deliver. Now for Habakkuk and his faithful companions, the salvation which God was bringing, the destruction of the nations and the wicked ones, was, was all pretty clear. Babylon is the dominant threat. Before them it had been Assyria, who had come right up to Jerusalem and besieged it before the Lord had saved before them, it had been the Philistines and the Egyptians. It would be the Egyptians again, and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. All these wicked nations and their kings were a threat to the people of God. And their king, king in the line of David, the anointed one of God. These enemies are the immediate threat in the nations that God will thresh. So much, so much is obvious. It's front and center here. In the years of hardship brought on by these nations, God has right here provided for his people heart-sustaining help by showing, him, himself, showing them himself come to deliver them from these physical enemies, these physical dangers and trials. But there's a little more going on here. It is hard not to ask, who is that anointed one? In verse 13, the word is singular. It's talking about somebody, an anointed one. And while we're asking questions in verse 13, who is that head of the house of the wicked? What exactly are we talking about here? There are easy answers and there are more intriguing answers. On the surface, the anointed one is written parallel to the, the phrase, your people, saves your people, save your anointed one. So it's, it suggests that the anointed one is the chosen one of God, the king, and to save him is the same as saving the people. If you save the king, if you save the anointed, you save his people. Makes a lot of sense here. And the head of the wicked, probably a foreign Babylonian king. Those are the easy answers. But any time the word Messiah appears in an Old Testament passage, we have to pay attention. 
That's the word here for anointed, Messiah. Greek translation would say, and does say in fact, Christ. You can see why this is kind of interesting? Catches your attention a little bit. Furthermore, not only do we have the word Christ here in the text, but you could very legitimately translate this. It could go either way as to save your anointed, or you could translate it save with your anointed. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your Christ. God marches forth to save with his Christ, or to save his Christ. What exactly are we talking about here? Like so much of the Old Testament's references to Jesus, especially in passages that are filled with imagery, you never get it quite so straightforward as to say, Jesus is God, he's going to come to earth in the body of a human being, he's going to be born of a virgin, he's going to live a sinless life, die on a Roman cross to pay for the sin of his people, be raised on the third day, go back to heaven 40 days later. You never get it quite that clear in the Old Testament. What you very often get are passages that kind of make you do this. Turn your head to the side and say, huh, what exactly is going on? This sounds like something that I've heard before. You have heard this before. In the garden, for instance, the very beginning, right after the first human sin, God said, I'm going to bring forth a special one, a descendant of Eve, and I'm going to use that special one to crush your head, Satan. You're going to bite back at him, you're going to bruise him, but I'm going to keep him from dying. I'm going to protect him, and through him, I'm going to deliver all her seed from you crushes the head of the wicked and delivers the anointed and through him his people. You keep reading and you find out that the anointed one is David whom God delivered from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear and from the hand of Goliath and in delivering him from the hand of that wicked Philistine he delivered all of his people as well. He saves the anointed and the people of the anointed. And we find that there is a special anointed lamb slain for the people, killed for their sin, but not left to decay. God would not let his Holy One see corruption. And so he saved him from the grave and brought him forth. And with him, he saves all of those who trust him. You have heard this before. And it is the strongest help that God can give you amidst the years of hardship to see him awesome in nature and to see him come to save. Come to save his anointed and through that saving of his anointed to save the people of the anointed, those who trust him. Look at Christ. Look at Christ's cross. Look at Christ's empty tomb. Him saved out of it and raised so that you can be saved out of it and raised. He has made that possible a way to have life eternal. So cling to Him in faith. Persistent all the time, despite the circumstances. But there's more still. Because all of this imagery must also sound like another story that you've heard. At least parts of. The story of the Anointed One's return. 
This awesome imagery was not fully expressed when he came humble like a servant, submitting himself to death, even death on a cross. He did not shake the mountains then. He did not thresh the nations. But he will. He will come back. And all of the years of trouble will end. He's promised. Until then, in order to help sustain us, to strengthen our faith, that which we most need, for that purpose he gave Habakkuk a vision and told him to write it down and pass it on so that you and I could read it and could see him awesome in his nature, could meditate on it and have it move into our hearts and change us to be the tool that the Spirit uses when he gives him the keys to our minds and hearts. This passage right here, pray, Spirit, use this to change me. That's why God gave it to Habakkuk, for you to use, to be strengthened. Brothers and sisters, stand in awe of him and trust him. That's the point of verse 16, the fourth stage. Let me close by very briefly touching on it. It's the main point of the verse. Stand in awe and patiently trust him. Look how his body is affected. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver. Legs are trembling. He has seen something that has struck him and he's about to come apart at the seams. He sees a horrible invasion coming and he has seen a stunning vision of God. And instead of just looking at that and trying to ignore reality, he instead turns and faces reality directly and looks at it through the lens of this vision. Yet I will patiently await the judgment on these invaders. He's so struck. He thinks he's going to collapse. But he gathers himself and says, I will wait. I will wait in the midst of these years, feeding on what I have just seen and been struck by. He will bring calamity on them in time but he will give me life now amidst these years by giving me himself the years of tumult and trembling in your life one day will end but now God means to build faith in you to cause you to grow up and mature and to fasten yourself to Him. Passages like this can help seeing Him big. May He do that work in you today. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.